Happy New Year! Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, Episode 5. An Introduction to Jung's Life and Work by Murray Stein, Ph.D. This course, taught by author and analyst Murray Stein, presents a historical overview of Jung's life and work, detailing his relationship with Freud and discussing reasons for Jung's increasing popularity and relevance for contemporary society. This seminar was recorded in 1992. This is the second talk by Murray Stein on this podcast. If you like this one, listen to episode 3, Individuation in Marriage Through Wounding and Healing. For more information about Murray, uh, go to his website, murraystein.com. We have several audio sets by Murray, including A Psychological Approach to the Bible and The Jungian Psyche, A Deeper Look at Analytical Psychology, both of which can be found at audio.jungchicago.org. There will also be a link in the description. Uh, now here is the lecture. I wanted to um, introduce Jung to you by uh, telling you how I was introduced to Jung and sort of presenting him the same way that I first came to him myself. Uh, my first introduction to Jung was uh, reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, this book. It's uh, an autobiography written by Jung in his late life or put together by Jung and his personal secretary, Aniela Jaffe, when he was in his uh, mid-80s. He died at the age of 86. <clears throat> and so what you have here is a retrospective view from deep old age, uh, um, which gives it a particular quality and feeling tone. Uh, and. The Jung I want to present to you tonight does have a particular feeling tone to him. I want to get across the spirit of Jung, if I can, tonight, as much as some details about his life and work. So I thought I'd start by reading you a passage from this uh, autobiography, the passage that opens it. And I think this gives you uh, something of a feeling for Jung as he finally um, reached his uh, full maturity. So he opens in a prologue by saying, my life is a story of the self-realization of the unconscious. Everything in the unconscious seeks outward manifestation and the personality too desires to evolve out of its unconscious conditions and to experience itself as a whole. I cannot employ the language of science to trace this process of growth in myself, for I cannot experience myself as a scientific problem. What we are to our inward vision, and what man appears to be subspecie eternitatis, can only be expressed by way of myth. Myth is more individual and expresses life more precisely than does science. 
Science works with concepts of averages which are far too general to do justice to the subjective variety of an individual life. Thus it is that I have now undertaken in my 83rd year to tell my personal myth. <clears throat> I can only make direct statements, only tell stories. Whether or not the stories are true is not the problem. The only question is whether what I tell is my fable, my, my truth. An autobiography is so difficult to write because we possess no standards, no objective foundation from which to judge ourselves. There are really no proper bases for comparison. I know that in many things I am not like others, but I do not know what I really am like. Man cannot compare himself with any other creature. He's not a monkey, not a cow, not a tree. I'm a man. But what is it to be that? Like every other being, I'm a splinter of the infinite deity, but I cannot contrast myself with any animal, any plant, or any stone. Only a mythical being has a range greater than man's. How then can a man form any definite opinion about himself? We are a psychic process which we cannot control, or only partly direct. Consequently, we cannot have any final judgment about ourselves or our lives. If we had, we would know everything, but at most that is only a pretense. At bottom we never know how it has all come about. The story of a life begins somewhere, at some particular point we happen to remember, and even then it was already highly complex. We do not know how life is going to turn out. Therefore the story has no beginning, and the end can only be vaguely hinted at. The life of a man is a dubious experiment. It is a tremendous phenomenon, only in numerical terms. Individually it is so fleeting, so insufficient, that it is literally a miracle that anything can exist and develop at all. I was impressed by that fact long ago as a young medical student, and it seemed to me miraculous that I should not have been prematurely annihilated. Life has always seemed to me like a plant that lives on its rhizome. Its true life is invisible, hidden in the rhizome. The part that appears above ground lasts only a single summer. Then it withers away, an ephemeral apparition. When we think of the unending growth and decay of life and civilizations, we cannot ex escape the impression of absolute nullity, yet I've never lost a sense of something that lives and endures underneath the eternal flux. What we see is the blossom which passes, the rhizome remains. In the end, the only events in my life worth telling are those when the imperishable world <clears throat> erupted into this transitory one. That is why I speak chiefly of inner experiences, amongst which I include my dreams and visions. These form the prima materia of my scientific work. They were the fiery magma out of which the stone that had to be worked was crystallized. All other memories of travels, people, and my surroundings have paled beside these inner happenings. Many people have participated in the story of our times and written about it. If the reader wants an account of that, let him turn to them or get somebody to tell it to him. Recollection of the outward events of my life has largely faded or disappeared, but my encounters with the other reality, my bouts with the unconscious, are indelibly engraved upon my memory. In that realm there has always been wealth and abundance, and everything else has lost importance by comparison.
Similarly, other people are established inalienably in my memories only if their names were entered in the scrolls of my destiny from the beginning, so that encountering them was at the same time a kind of recollection. Inner experiences also set their seal on the outward events that came my way and assumed importance for me in youth and later on. I only arrived at the insight that when no answer comes from within to the problems and complexities of life, they ultimately mean very little. Outward circumstances are no substitute for inner experience. Therefore, my life has been singularly poor in outward happenings. I, I cannot tell much about them, for it would strike me as hollow and insubstantial. I can understand myself only in the light of inner happenings. It is these that make up the singularity of my life, and with these my autobiography deals. So that gives you a feeling of uh, Jung as he thought about his life from the perspective of 83 years and looking back on all that time. When he says his outer life was singularly barren, uh, it's quite an exaggeration because he actually led a very interesting life. He traveled widely. He knew a lot of famous and interesting people. He had lunch with Churchill, for example. He had a lunch with Einstein. Uh, he knew uh, a wide variety of people, and he was a very popular man. When this autobiography was published, those who knew him well were astonished at uh, the portrait that he painted. They said they had no idea that he felt so isolated and lonely, in a way, uh, because he certainly didn't give that appearance. Well, I want to tell you something about his life tonight and put his works in a context of his lived existence. Um, and I'll do that by drawing a timeline and locating on the timeline some of the most important events in his life and some of his major works. In the course of these coming lectures, you'll hear a lot more about all of this, but this is to introduce you and give you a kind of overview of uh, Jung's life from beginning to end and some of the highlights in it. He was born in 1875 in a small Swiss village on the German border on the Rhine River called Laufen, near the Rhine Falls. If you've ever been to uh, that area of Switzerland, you will remember that there is a, a famous falls, the Rhine creates a falls, Rhine originates in the Alps, runs along the border between Switzerland and Germany, and then goes up into Germany and empties itself in the Atlantic up in, around Holland somewhere. I don't know the exact geography of that. Uh, but he was born right on this river. It's not far from Zurich. It's about a, a, an hour and a half or two hours drive from Zurich, maybe 50 miles. As you come flying into Zurich, if you've ever been there, you know that you come in from the, from the west. You're flying east, and to your right, to the south, are the Alps at quite a distance. If, if it's a clear day, you can see the Alps from Zurich, but Zurich itself is on a, on a tableland, a flatland. If you fly there in anything but the winter, it's usually green. You see farms, small farms, very carefully laid out, carefully cultivated, neat little roads. Uh, wood piles stacked very neatly beside the, 
about beside the barns, Swiss style. Swiss are a very neat, orderly, tending toward obsessive compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're watchmakers. They're known for precision, uh, for stubbornness, uh, for independence. They've been a neutral country uh, throughout uh, the centuries and uh, for being fierce fighters, actually. Uh, they, they won their independence from the Habsburgs back in, I think, about a thousand years ago, and they've never given it up since. The Swiss speak four languages nationally. Uh, Jung was born in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, uh, but Swiss also speak French, Italian, and a dialect of Old Latin called Romanish. All four of these languages are represented in Parliament, and uh, anyone is allowed to speak his own language in Parliament, and everyone is expected to understand that language. So the Swiss are linguists. It's not at all unusual to find secretaries, common secretaries, high school, barely high school graduates, who speak four and five languages fluently in Zurich. And Jung also was a linguist. He wrote in English, French, Italian, and German. He lectured. He spoke spontaneously. Uh, in all of those languages. But that isn't unusual for a European. He also was a highly educated man, uh, a classical education. He read Greek and Latin without a dictionary. And, uh, uh, but that, again, was not too unusual for a person of his times. He was born in 1875, as I said, into the family of a Swiss parson. And um, his ancestry is... Uh, uh, Echt Schweiz, true Swiss. Uh, on his mother's side, the Swiss line goes back into the dim mists of time. I don't know how far back. They probably were originally Swiss. A uh, family named Freisberg, whose location, uh, family location, was in Bern. On his father's side, uh, it was only two or three generations. His, I think his grandfather's father had immigrated perhaps it was his grandfather, had immigrated to Switzerland from Germany in 1848 during the revo revolutions that were going on in Germany at the time. Um, may have been jailed even, I'm not sure, but he was a kind of rebellious young student and he fled Germany and settled in Switzerland. Jung's grandfather uh, on his father's side was a, um, a professor at the University of Basel in the medical faculty. Uh, a well-known uh, citizen, uh, <coughs> upright, intelligent, uh, a pillar of the community. On his mother's side, another pillar of the community, this one was in the clergy, and he was the what has been called the Swiss equivalent of an English bishop. It's in the Swiss Reformed Church, but he was in charge of the, the pastor in charge of the main church of main cathedral in Basel, a man named Samuel Preiswerk, rather famous uh, churchman of his day. That's on his mother's side. So these two streams came together in Jung's parents, uh, and uh, when they married, uh, Jung's father had earned his doctorate degree from a German university in Semitic languages and had been ordained as a parson in the Swiss Reformed Church. Um, <coughs> Jung's childhood was spent in parsonages. He was an only child until about the age of 12 when a sister was born. 
But as he describes his childhood in his autobiography, uh, you can see that it was a, a, child, a childhood of an only child growing up in mostly rural circumstances. There aren't many playmates around, rather lonely, rather isolated, lots of time to entertain himself with his own imagination, had a very vivid imagination, invented little games and rituals for himself that in long retrospect he could see were very symbolic and very meaningful. I won't describe them to you. You can read about them in his autobiography. Uh, some some fairly serious difficulties in his childhood. At about the age of two, his mother was hospitalized for um, what seems to have been a depression. And so she, she did have some psychiatric problems. How bad they were, nobody knows exactly. Uh, Jung records the fact that she was gone for about six months, uh, during which time he was taken care of by a nurse to whom he became very attached. Um, he also says that there was a side of his mother that he was very afraid of. There was a day personality and a night personality. The day personality was very comfortable, very stable, somebody he knew, but the night personality scared him. So she, uh, she was a difficult personality, somewhat problematic. And uh, on her side, uh, you, can, you can attribute Jung's interest in mediumistic phenomena to her side, her side of the family. Uh, she had a particular gift for contact with the unconscious, if you will. And she was very interested in uh, ghosts and uh, spirits and contacting them Wednesday afternoons. Young says elsewhere, not in this autobiography, but he reports elsewhere, on Wednesday afternoons they typically pull the shades and have a seance in their living room. His mother would be present, his sister later, this was in his adolescence, and he had a mediumistically, psychically gifted cousin named Helly Priceberg who could come and make the tables rise up and speak in strange voices. And uh, this was their Wednesday afternoon entertainment. Uh, Jung all his life was interested in these kind of psychic phenomena and uh, spiritualistic or spiritistic phenomena. He never could quite decide whether those spirits really exist outside the psyche or whether they are representations of the complexes and of the unconscious. Uh, he was always a bit ambivalent about that. So uh, he was not a psychological reductionist when it came to ghosts and spirits all the time anyway. Um, when he was about, uh, oh, forget the exact age, eight or ten, something like that, uh, his family moved to another small village, uh, this time near Basel. His father took another church, and that's where he spent the rest of his uh, early days until he went off to college at the University of Basel at the age of 18. And uh, his, he, he said about his mother that there were these two sides. One was kind of frightening, dangerous, the nighttime personality uh, who would speak from another place and uh, would say strange things sometimes and scare him. But there was also a kind of absolute honesty and truth in that side. Uh, the other side was kind of a persona of personality, uh, normal and adjusted and uh, the kind of person you'd expect a Swiss housewife to be. Uh, his father, he looks upon as a, uh, a very stable man, somebody who he could trust, 
And so he said all his life he found, tended to find women untrustworthy and men more trustworthy because of this beginning, where his mother was kind of in and out of sane places. His father was always there. But as he looked back on his father, he also saw his father as a troubled and somewhat weak man. Now this is in retrospect from adulthood. I don't know how his father would have looked to him as a child. But as an adult, looking back, he saw his father as being troubled by a terrible conflict between science and religion that his father never could solve. And his father died when he, Carl, was 19 years old, I believe 18, 19, 20, in there somewhere, uh, of an unspecified disease, probably cancer of the stomach, the way it sounds, anyway. It was never... <clears throat> established as that, but that's the way it sounds. And um, there is a scene where Carl, who by this time was a big, strapping, six-foot-two, very strong, husky young man, carried his father, who had withered to and shrunken to a bag of bones, uh, from chair to bed. A very poignant scene as his father is dying right at the end of his life. There are lots of stories in the autobiography about Jung and his father and uh, his connection to his father and his feelings about his father. His father was very important in his later career and the kinds of topics he chose to write about, especially the subject of religion, which preoccupied Jung a lot toward the end of his life. He dreamed about his father quite a bit after his death, and he records those dreams also. So he had a, a slightly unusual childhood, rather alone, rather isolated, probably too much emphasis on fantasy, probably a disturbed mother. And this laid the groundwork for what would later be his gift and his curse, a particularly intense connection to the unconscious, to his inner life. Uh, that he was very, very strongly connected to, um, not as disturbed as his mother, although he did have a period that I'll tell you about when he thought he might be going crazy. His inner turmoil was so strong. But at about the age of uh, 19 or 20 was when he went to the university in Basel, and he had to decide on a course of study He decided to pursue medicine because it was a practical solution to his uh, problem of earning a living. He didn't come from a wealthy family, uh, and so he had to think about how to earn a living. His real interest, he says, was archaeology. Archaeologists aren't paid very much, and you had to be independently wealthy in Europe at the time to uh, seek out an academic career, usually. Professors had to more or less pay their own way until they became very established in the universities, and there wasn't very much pay or any pay until they got there, and even then it wasn't a well-paying job. So he, he had a, a sort of practical bent, and he chose medicine instead, and it was in his family line. His father's father had been a medical professor at the university. Um, somewhere in his background, he felt he might be a descendant of Goethe's, on his father's side also. There's that myth, and he writes about that occasionally. 
and whether that was true or not, it did give him a particular connection to culture and literature and uh, Goethe as the, the deity of German culture. At least he was in, in Jung's time. And so Jung's wide-ranging interests in uh, philosophy and religion and art and mythology and science and alchemy. All of this is uh, more or less a mirror reflection of Goethe's interests, wide-ranging interests in a lot of those same subjects. <clears throat> and so uh, as a young man studying medicine at the university, Jung uh, also studied philosophy, studied religion. He wasn't a narrow specialist ever and uh, had a, a strong and vivid interest in archaeology and anthropology, those subjects, uh, ancient history. Um, later in his life, he would visit places and peoples that would feed that interest further, and he could look for himself into some of these areas when he could afford to, afford to do that. But uh, being um, fixed on, on the practical solution of medicine, he did finish his degree in medicine at the University of Basel in 1900. <coughs> 1900. So we have a timeline here that reaches to 1900 at this point when he graduates from the University of Basel. This is his youth period. And in 1900, he decides to specialize in psychiatry, which was a great surprise to him. He tells in the autobiography how he came upon that by studying for his final exams. He didn't think very much of the psychiatry rotation in his practicum uh, visits and so on at the hospitals. Uh, didn't think much of psychiatry or psychiatrists and didn't have much respect for the, their science. Um, and he shared that prejudice with the rest of the medical students. But when he read a, a textbook um, in preparation for his final exams, there was a particular section of this textbook that struck him, and he says it was like he couldn't, he, he, he almost lost his breath. He had to stand up and walk around because suddenly he realized that in psychiatry, a number of his interests would come together or could come together. Uh, an interest in science on the one hand and biology, uh, but also the mental side of human life, which had interested him uh, since childhood, uh, studies in philosophy and, and religion and uh, um, as well as his uh, mother's psychology and his interest in uh, odd states of uh, consciousness and so on. All of this could be brought together, he felt. He said it's as though two great streams came together in one riverbed and he saw that psychiatry would be the way in which he could uh, probably realize his best potentials for creative thinking and work. And so he uh, just spontaneously went off in this direction of psychiatry. He had an offer to uh, become the assistant to a, a rather famous doctor of internal medicine in Munich, which was a great coup in his time and uh, would have been quite a, quite a plum to, uh, to accept. But he turned that down and instead he went to Zurich. Now this was his first uh, uh, the first time he would live in Zurich, and he would stay in Zurich for the rest of his life. He moved there in 1900 to study under a uh, world-famous uh, teacher of, of psychiatry named Eugen Bleuler. Eugen Bleuler was the chief uh, doctor at the 
uh, main clinic in Zurich, the Burkholzli Clinic. And Eugen Bleuler is the man who invented the word schizophrenia, for example, and wrote the definitive textbook on schizophrenia in his day. His son also was a, a very famous psychiatrist, and I think his grandson is now running that very same clinic, Burkholzli Clinic in Zurich. So it's a kind of a family business there. Um, so Jung went to uh, Bloiler's clinic in 1900 and very quickly proved to be uh, extremely adept at psychiatry. Uh, he worked very hard. He studied all the uh, textbooks of the time and read all the journal articles. Uh, but beyond that, he was a very creative researcher and thinker. And so he established himself very early on uh, in Bloiler's circle as a leader. And uh, uh, what he did was uh, to uh, made his first main contribution to psychological theory in this early period between 1900 and 1905 through his work with the word association experiment. And this is a, um, a, a group of uh, about 100 words that are read by a tester to a testee, and then the tester records the first reactions that are given and measures the time interval it takes to respond and so on and so forth. And out of these studies, Jung came up with the idea that there are unconscious complexes at work. Beneath the surface of consciousness, and he could actually measure how they worked, how they disturbed consciousness, very scientific, laboratory science. Okay, so that pleased everybody at the hospital, pleased Jung a great deal. He published papers on this subject. He and some of colleagues got together their papers and published a book on it in 1907 or so, 1905, 1907, and there are studies in word association. <coughs> and uh, this gave him an international reputation. Suddenly he was called upon to give lectures and seminars all around Europe, and uh, he made a name for himself in psychiatry very quickly. So by the age of 30, he was practically internationally famous. <coughs> very unusual uh, situation. But he'd shown his, his genius for research and innovative thinking in the field of psychology and psychiatry. Uh, at the same time, he was uh, reading widely uh, in the field, psychology, and he came across Freud. He came across Freud's writings already in 1900 when Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams. Jung picked it up immediately, gave a seminar on it to the other residents at the Berkholzli Clinic, and was intrigued with, the, with Freud's work on what Freud was now calling the unconscious. And Jung put these two things together, these unconscious complexes that he was discovering with his word association experiment, and Freud's work on discoveries about the unconscious through dream interpretation. And uh, picked up especially on Freud's notion of repression, that the reason there are these complexes, that the unconscious exists, that there are pieces of us that we don't know about that are active and disturb us, is that there is this mechanism of repression. That's Freud's idea. And so Jung picked up on that, and he put theory of complexes together with the notion of repression. He wrote a paper on that, and, he, and uh, uh, and tried to use it uh, in, a, in a book that he wrote on schizophrenia and gave uh, Freud great credit for understanding the unconscious 
put together his theory of complexes with that and wrote a book on schizophrenia, published it in 1907, 1908, and sent a copy to Freud in Vienna. Now, Freud's living in Vienna, which is about eight hours' trip by train from Zurich to the west, to the, to the east, to the east of Zurich. And uh, this is the first time that Freud hears about Jung. And uh, Freud writes right back to him, thanks him for the book, says how interesting this is. They must be working on the same lines. Uh, Jung is working experimentally, scientifically. Freud is working clinically, uncovering these things in his patients, in his, in his practice. And uh, Freud is thrilled to have this confirmation from a hard-nosed scientist over there in Zurich. Um, so Freud invites Jung to come to visit him in Vienna sometime. Jung gets on the train and goes there. 1908, I think it's November. And he gets there, gets off the train, goes to Berggasse, goes into Freud's apartment, and they don't separate for 15 hours, nonstop talk. Jung has never been so excited in all his life. He says this is the first genius he's ever met. Uh, Freud impressed him tremendously. And Jung impressed Freud. Freud sort of fell in love with Jung because Freud saw in Jung another genius, and a genius who living over there in Zurich in psychiatry, a scientist, was what Freud needed to put psychoanalysis in a better position, because psychoanalysis was a very questionable enterprise in those days, and continued to be to some extent throughout its entire history. Uh, <coughs> But Jung had a number of qualities that Freud saw as a great advantage to psychoanalysis. And so very quickly on, they established a powerful personal relationship. There's a thick book of their letters that's been collected and published, translated into English, the Freud-Jung letters. So between 1908 and 1912-1913, we'll put another date down there, Jung was a Freudian. And Freud called Jung his crown prince, his heir, his, his successor as the leader of the psychoanalytic movement. And Jung became a very ardent psychoanalyst, psychoanalytic uh, defender. He would go around to congresses and defend Freud and defend psychoanalysis. And they wrote papers, um, presented them together. And in 1909, they traveled together to the United States, Freud and Jung number of other people, and they gave lectures at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Spent about a week there. At that point, Jung met William James. Was very taken with William James, another genius. Uh, learned a lot from William James later. Read William James's work, Varieties of Religious Experience, and some of his philosophy, and so on, and was uh, probably more influenced than he would ever admit by William James. <clears throat> but it was a brief meeting. They had a lunch together, and uh, Freud was the star, of course. But Jung was the heir apparent, and he, he also starred. Jung loved the United States. Freud hated the United States. Freud said the United States is too easy. They accept psychoanalysis too easily. It's a hidden resistance. I don't trust it. That's Freud. Jung loved it. He could extrovert over here. He had a great old time. He liked Americans. And he made a lot of friends among Americans. Americans liked him, and he liked Americans. 
There's something about the Swiss and the Americans, you know, that spirit of independence and free enterprise. The Swiss are quite a lot like Americans in many ways. <coughs> uh, belief in individual freedom, individualistic sort of people. Although the Swiss are quite a bit more reserved and introverted as a rule than Americans are. Uh, but they're just as interested in money as Americans are. And the Swiss are known for their interest in money, you know, the banks and all that. I should go back a little bit and say that in 1902, 1903, and there, Jung got married. And he married a woman who was born not very far from where he was born, in Schaffhausen. Her name was Emma Rauschenbusch. And she was the heir of a Swiss fortune, which is why Jung could write so many books. <laughs> and uh, very quickly, they built a big house on the lake in Zurich with her money. And Jung lived in that house for the rest of his life. And his son still lives there today. So uh, that's where Jung's uh, privilege came from and his wealth. Uh, while he worked all his life, and he worked very hard, seeing patients and writing and lecturing and so on, the edge of the financial crisis had been taken off after his marriage. So as long as he stayed married, at least, married to Emma, he was okay. Uh, but uh, all things considered, they had a, an interesting marriage, a long marriage. She died in 1955, I think, and uh, he had quite a wonderful dream about her after she died. They had five children. None of them went into psychology. None of Freud's children went into well, one, one of famous daughter of Freud's went into psychology, but his sons didn't. And uh, Jung's son became an architect, actually. Uh, he did have a daughter who became an astrologer, a psychological astrologer, and uh, I'm not sure what the other children did. I think there was one son and four daughters. Um, well, until 1913, as I say, Jung was a Freudian. He and Freud severed their relationship uh, around New Year's, 1913, for a wide variety of reasons. They had theoretical differences. They had personal, uh, personal falling out, hurt feelings. Uh, Jung let Freud down. Freud let Jung down. It was one of those transference, counter-transference tangles. Uh, their relationship ender, ended in bitterness on both sides. And from that point on, Jungians and Freudians basically haven't spoken to each other until recent times. But they very much went their separate ways, and uh, Freud wrote Jung uh, out of psychoanalysis as eager, as, as not, I shouldn't say eagerly, as um, decisively as he had tried to write Jung into psychoanalysis earlier. In 1910, Freud sponsored a movement to make Jung the lifelong president of the International Psychoanalytic Association. In 1913, he didn't want to speak to Jung again, and uh, he never, ever referred to Jung or Jung's work in a positive way after that. Uh, Jung, on the other hand, I think did end up with a slightly more balanced appreciation of Freud and Freudian thought uh, than Freud did of Jung. But uh, it was a... Uh, uh, a bitter and um, uh, unresolved uh, ending of their relationship in 1913. 
And that triggered uh, a psychological process in Jung that would last for the next 15 years. Uh, intensely for about five years. In his autobiography, he writes about this as his confrontation with the unconscious. It begins in 1913. It more or less subsides in 1918, but it doesn't really finish until 1928. And it's during this time that Jung becomes a Jungian. This is where the Jung that we know comes into being, and it is through a tremendous midlife crisis. At this time, he is between 38 years old, 38 and 1913, and it ends when he's about 53. And it, the, the intensity of it is from the age of 38 until about the age of 42, classic midlife time. But it's triggered by his loss of Freud, loss of that relationship. And uh, at that moment, he loses his moorings. Uh, he isn't sure anymore about his direction or what he's going to do with his career because he's been so committed to psychoanalysis. And here's how he describes his feelings at the time of his break with Freud. This is from a chapter called Confrontation with the Unconscious. After the parting of the ways with Freud, a period of inner uncertainty began for me. It would be no exaggeration to call it a state of disorientation. I felt totally suspended in midair, for I had not yet found my own footing. Above all, I felt it necessary to develop a new attitude toward my patients. I resolved for the present not to bring any theoretical premises to bear upon them, but to wait and see what they would tell me of their own accord. My aim became to leave things to chance. The result was that the patients would spontaneously report their dreams and fantasies to me, and I would merely ask, what occurs to you in connection with that? Sounds like a therapist. <laughs> or how do you mean that? Where does that come from? What do you think about it? So instead of interpreting, he's eliciting associations. The interpretations seemed to follow their own accord from the patient's replies and associations. I avoided all theoretical points of view and simply help the patients to understand the dream images by themselves without application of rules and theories. Soon I realized that it was right to take the dreams in this way as the basis of interpretation, for that is how dreams are intended. They are the facts from which we must proceed. About the same time, I experienced a moment of unusual clarity in which I looked back over the way I had traveled so far. I thought, now you possess a key to mythology and are free to unlock all the gates of the unconscious psyche. He just published a book. This was the occasion of his break with Freud when he published this book called Symbols of Transformation. And uh, it's an investigation of a, of a series of uh, waking fantasies of a woman, but also a tremendous amount of material in mythology, world religions, Gnosticism, all kinds of stuff that Jung packed into there. But then something whispered within me, why open all gates? And promptly the question arose of what, after all, I had accomplished. I, I had explained the myths of people of the past. I had written a book about the hero, the myth in which man has always lived. But in what myth does man live nowadays? In the Christian myth, the answer might be. 
Do you live in it? I asked myself. To be honest, the answer was no. For me, it is not what I live by. Then do we no longer have any myth? No, evidently, we no longer have any myth. But then what is your myth, the myth in which you do live? At this point, the dialogue with myself became uncomfortable, and I stopped thinking. I had reached a dead end. So he'd lost his myth. That's the way he puts it. He'd lost, he'd lost the uh, thing that made his, the idea that made sense of his life. Told him where he was going, where he came from, what it was all about. It wasn't the Christian myth, and it wasn't Freudian psychoanalysis. So now he was bereft. And this sets off a tremendous inner upheaval of uh, dreams, spontaneous fantasies, terribly uh, intense emotions. Sometimes he says it was as though he couldn't tell the difference between himself and his patients, his schizophrenic patients. He thought he was losing his mind. He was very worried that it was so intense. This, uh, we could recognize it, I suppose, as a midlife crisis or a grief process, a mourning, loss, all those things that come together at that particular moment in life. But he faithfully recorded his dreams. He worked with them. And through these five years, he gradually calmed down and kind of got uh, control of himself and uh, started to understand what, what was going on in his psyche. And he records a lot of these dreams. I don't have time to go into them with you. You can read them for yourselves. Some of them are very gory and frightening indeed. And it would make you think that maybe he's undergoing a schizophrenic break. Uh, but uh, by staying with the process and going into it and discovering the unconscious and that it is at bottom something he could rely on, he finally did reach the bottom. He discovered that there is something in the psyche that he could rely on that would be there for him no matter who abandoned him or no matter what he lost in life. That experience of reaching that place of security in himself was the point at which he could safely say that maybe now he had discovered a new myth. And here's how he puts it. This comes at the end of his chapter, where he talks about a dream that he had in 1928, uh, the so-called famous Liverpool dream. And he says, This dream brought with it a sense of finality. I saw that here the goal had been revealed. One could not go beyond the center. He discovered the center, the center of himself. He'd later call that the self. One could not go beyond the center. <clears throat> the center is the goal, and everything is directed toward that center. Through this dream, I understood that the self is the principle and archetype of orientation and meaning. Therein lies its healing function. For me, this insight signified an approach to the center and therefore to the goal. Out of it emerged a first inkling of my personal myth. So this was the birth of Jung's personal myth. He theorized about it for the rest of his life. He called it the self. This central organizing principle at the bottom of the psyche that you get to usually in crisis, that you can see sometimes in images and dreams, it symbolizes itself in various ways. You can see it in religion, mythology. And, and for the rest of his life, Jung would ponder, what is this thing, the self? And how to evoke it in his patients, because he found it was such a healing experience for himself when he could finally get to it. So in his, his therapy would change. He would help his patients into their unconscious material, <coughs> deepen their experience of the psyche in the confidence 
that if you go far enough, you'll eventually discover this center, this organizing principle, this foundation of your existence. And Jung would sometimes say there is really no difference between the experience of the self and the experience of God. It's the God within. So this became the source of his new mythology and his new orientation. Now that's the Jung that we know. That's the Jungian Jung. This was made in the cauldron of that tumultuous midlife crisis between 1913 and 1928, when it was finally concluded. Um, In 1928, Jung is 53 years old. He's published a number of important books. One is here in 1913, 12, 13, Symbols of Transformation, another important one, 1921, Psychological Types. The Myers-Briggs test is derived from that book, that 1921 book. It's now the most widely used psychological test in the United States, so Jung is, is out there. Okay, that's uh, Jung wrote that book while he was going through this tremendous crisis. Now, that's a whole story in itself, how he could do that, but he could operate at different levels. So while at one level he was going through this terrible inner turmoil, at other levels he was continuing his scientific work. He had a family with five children. He was seeing patients throughout. He was he pulled back a little bit. He was no he gave up a, his professorship at the university, and cut back a little bit. Didn't travel. It was the first world war. He couldn't leave the country anyway. So it was while it was an introverted time, he did continue functioning on other levels too. From the autobiography, you can get the impression that he lived a sort of very interior, uh, singular, isolated existence, but actually he was uh, very much uh, out there in the world and doing all the normal things that people do. In uh, 1928, then, he concluded this and started traveling a good bit. He traveled to America several times. Uh, I think it was 1928, he went out to Taos, came through Chicago, picked up Fowler McCormick on the train, and they went out to Taos, New Mexico, and visited the Pueblo Indians out there where he had a famous conversation with a a Pueblo Indian medicine man. Um, he, He took a trip to Africa, in 1930, I think, uh, and so on. He was out and about and enjoying his life in in many ways. Uh, To continue the timeline, he dies in 1961 at the age of 86. And if we say this is his youth and this is his early adulthood, you could say this is his first mature period, or early adult. And this is more or less sort of his middle period. And about from 1938 on, we can say it's his late period. And 19, I, I put a mark at 1938 because that's the year he took a trip to India. And it's just the time when the Second World War is beginning to threaten. He took a a trip to India to receive some honorary 
degrees from Indian universities and to meet some wise men of the East in India and so on. He was very much looking forward to this trip. And he was particularly interested in what he would dream about when he got to India, how his unconscious would respond. That was always an interest of his. What am I going to dream about in this place? And to his great astonishment, when he got to India and looked around there, it was very interesting, visited the temples, talked to people and all that. But the most important dream that he had there really changed his life and set him off on the course that we could call the late young. And the dream was that uh, he was on an island off the coast of England and at a place uh, called the Grail Castle. This is a place where the Grail uh, was supposed to be kept and there was going to be a ceremony. The, the, the ritual, the ceremony of the Grail was supposed to be held that evening. But it was discovered that the Grail had disappeared. Nobody could find it. And so as the dream progressed, uh, it was, it was uh, uh, apparently suggested that the grail could be found on an, on an island just up to the north, but you had to swim across this isthmus of cold water to get there. And as the dream ended, Jung was stripping down, getting ready to dive in the water to go fetch the grail. So he read that dream as a message that he needed to return back to Europe and help out European civilization, that that's where it was really at, that European civilization was in very bad shape, they had lost the way, the grail was missing, and he would try to help recover it. Now, we could talk all night about the symbolism of the grail, but let's just say it's, it, it is a symbol of the center, a cultural object of great value and meaning within the context of Judeo-Christian religion, and that uh, of all the dark times in the last 2,000 years, uh, as far as that tradition goes, probably 1938 to 1945 were the darkest. <clears throat> um, so he set out, and, and uh, of course he did it in his own unusual way. He didn't do it by going out and lecturing and preaching and, and trying to convince people of anything. He did it by studying alchemy. European alchemy, and so and and the Western uh, religious and cultural tradition, starting with the Bible, and so in the books that he would write from 1938 to the end of his life, this was his central preoccupation: his own religious tradition, Christianity, what had happened, how it had come to where it was today, what was wrong with it, where it needed to go. So he wrote many, many essays and books and, uh, on this subject, and, and uh, you can take courses around here on any one of them. Uh, from time to time, they're offered. Um, but this was the period of his great works on alchemy and, and on culture. He became a therapist to culture. He was no longer seeing patients very much. Occasionally he'd see somebody, talk to them about their big dreams or something, but he wasn't seeing patients the way a therapist does day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. He was retired in that sense from that kind of a practice. But instead of that, he became a therapist to Western culture. And so his late works are all an attempt to therapeutize this sick culture that we've got. Lots of work on, uh, on those kinds of subjects. Um, he did another very interesting thing, and with this I'm going to end my remarks. Uh, he built uh, a, a building with his own hands 
he called it the tower at a place called Bolingen. It's up the road from, up the lake from Kusnacht, uh, maybe 20 miles. He lived just outside of Zurich in a little village called Kusnacht. If you keep on going south, same side of the lake, another 20, 25 miles, you come to a place called Bolingen. There's nothing there. There's a train stop there, but there are no stores or, you know, it's just a little... It happens to be a stop on the train, that's all. And he bought a piece of land there in the 20s sometime and started building. He just got this idea. He wanted to build something. So he got some rocks together and started building a house. It eventually turned into a tower. You've seen pictures of this probably uh, in various places. And uh, uh, he would spend increasing amounts of time in this place. Now this is the old reclusive Jung coming into being now. This was kind of an escape or a retreat place. And he'd go out there and he'd, uh, he'd meditate, he'd write some, he would uh, carve on stones, he would build on this thing. Mainly it was a place where he could retreat more deeply into himself and into the psyche. And um, he built it in four sections. Um, maybe five, ten years apart. Build a piece, and then he'd live in that for a while, and build another piece and live in that. He didn't actually live there, but he'd spend weeks at a time out there, usually alone. Occasionally somebody would visit him, but no children, no grandchildren, no wife, (coughs) nobody else essentially around. This was his place, his retreat place. He had his own room, right? He says here about it, uh, after my wife's death in 1955, I felt an inner obligation to become what I myself am. Now, how old is he here? 1955, he's 80 80 years old. To put it in the language of the Bolingen house, I suddenly realized that the small central section which crouched so low, so hidden, was myself. I could no longer hide myself behind the maternal and the spiritual towers. So in that same year, I added an upper story to this section, which represents myself or my ego personality. Earlier, I would have not been able to do this. I would have regarded it as presumptuous self-emphasis. Now it signified an extension of consciousness achieved in old age. With that, the building was complete. I had started the first tower in 1923, two months after the death of my mother. These two dates are meaningful because the tower, as we shall see, is connected with the dead. From the beginning, I felt the tower as in some way a place of maturation, a maternal womb or a maternal figure in which I could become what I was, what I am and will be. It gave me a feeling that if I were being reborn in, as, as if I were being reborn in stone, it is thus a concretization of the individuation process. During the building work, of course, I never considered these matters. I built the house in sections, always following the concrete needs of the moment. It might also be said that I built it in a kind of dream. Only afterward did I see how all the parts fitted together and that a meaningful form had resulted, a symbol of psychic wholeness in four parts. If you know anything at all about Jung yet, you certainly will later, but uh, the number four is for him a number of completeness and totality. So he completed it in his 80th year. And he also says this at the end of this chapter called The Tower. He gives The Tower a whole chapter in his autobiography. It's a place he loved and he felt his 
as he said there, it's a place he could become himself completely. And this is at the end of that chapter on the tower. In the tower at Bolingen, it is as, it is as if one lived in many centuries simultaneously. The place will outlive me, and in its location and style it points backward to things of long ago. There's very little about it to suggest the present. If a man of the 16th century were to move into the house, only the kerosene lamp and the matches would be new to him. Otherwise, he would know his way about without difficulty. There's nothing to disturb the dead, neither electric light nor telephone. Moreover, my ancestors' souls are sustained by the atmosphere of the house, since I answer for them the questions that their lives once left behind. I carve out rough answers as best I can. I've even drawn them on the walls. It is as, it is as if a silent greater family stretching down the centuries were peopling the house. There I live in my second personality and see life in the round as something forever coming into being and passing on. So that is uh, Jung, the uh, magician and deep thinker. Maybe we could just spend five or ten minutes, if you'd like, to uh, entertain some questions and discussion. Yeah. What you were talking about, it comes with God, he said he knew God, he didn't believe in him. Yeah, that's the line. Yeah, but you know one thing you said, that sort of question is, you say he was very analytical and scientific, and yet he, the way he speaks of himself, is very much on the religious, for what to make a scientific stuff. It's, he, he, when, when he answers that question, I can't, uh, you know, I don't believe, I know. Well, that's because he points self with God, doesn't he? Therefore, he knew of himself. Yeah, right. It's, he had an experience. In other words, it's experience-based. Mm -hmm. So it's different from uh, faith or, or belief. Well, not just verifiable. Yeah. Believe it's not. It's, it's experience-based, yeah. and that's what he means. It's, uh, in his own personal experience, he had there were there was what he felt to be evidence of something beyond his finite existence. But he doesn't strike me as being very scientific in a lot of his Well, it depends on the kind of science you're talking about. Now, he, he's not. I mean, to me, he doesn't sound like a theologian at all. No, or or a mystic. But he, he strikes me more as a clinic, that clinician than a that person who's in a. Uh, and sort of like a laboratory. But he wants to formulate hypotheses, he wants facts, he wants evidence. Now, he, he's not a laboratory scientist, mm -hmm. but when he tries to establish proof for the existence of the archetypes, for example, he doesn't only on the basis of his own intuitions, he goes out looking for evidence. But isn't that true? I remember years ago in psychology, they spent the first half of the semester trying to prove they were science. Wasn't it? I said, this sort of comes back to me now. Those psychologists always spend part of their time trying to prove they are assigned to the person. They want to assure people that they're searching for knowledge rather than uh, erecting belief systems out of their own fantasy. Young uh, is somewhere in between. You know, I mean, he says every psychology is the personal confession of the psychologist. There's always a personal element in it. There's always a personal bias in it. So he would never claim that his own brand of psychology was rid of personal bias. 
even his methodology contains a personal bias. The way he went about doing research, it's a, it's a form of empiricism. There is an empirical method in it. There is a search for facts and a comparison of objects and, and uh, you know, entertainment of hypotheses, testing of hypotheses. So there is all that kind of language and methodology in it. Um, but there's also a very personal element in it. There's an introspective element in it, an intuitive element in it. There's a clinical component to it, clinical evidence, if you will, which is always pretty vague. I mean, if you're, if you're looking for hard science, laboratory science, no, it's not there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Early on, there was laboratory science with the word association experiment. That was done in a laboratory. It's timed, you know, there's a time element to it. There's, it can be verified, it can be repeated, you know charted and so on. But uh, that of, uh, in his psychology, that's the only element that is laboratory science. Yeah. Talk or maybe explain a little bit more. Um, he has an early dream um, about the phallus, you know, going underneath, um, underground in his, in his uh, autobiography. Yeah. Sort of the, it takes him a long time, I guess, to finally come to grips and to share it with the person. But just sort of the meaning of that in his life. I guess I'm not sure if I totally understand what that was. Yeah. Well, uh, he worked with that image for a long time. He's a young boy at that point, maybe 10 years old, 8, 10, something like that. And he goes in, underground, in an underground uh, chamber and he sees this gigantic phallus-like thing, uh, maybe 8 feet tall, and a light is radiating from its top, you know. And his mother calls out at a certain moment, that is the man killer, I think. He associates it with his father, and you know, you can make an edible interpretation of it. And in his Freudian phase, he would do that. But he also gave it a much more strong, more enlarged symbolic significance later on when he thought about it as mythic, you know, that, uh, and it had to do with his um, masculine creativity, he felt. You know, I mean, his phallic uh, potential, a uh, kind of vision of his phallic potential as a child. So he lived with that image um, uh, all his life. It's one of his important dreams. He had maybe two dozen, I never counted them, but maybe two dozen important dreams, and that's one of them. Um, the, his his uh, fellow autobiographer, Anila Yaffe, wrote a very interesting essay about him one time. She called it The Creative Phases in Young's Life. He was a very creative man. I mean, innovative, restless, um, exploring, that sort of, uh, of a mind. Uh, and she associated that dream of childhood with his creativity. Uh, that it's a symbol of creativity for him. It's a frightening kind of creativity. Uh, there's an element of fear in it, um, but it clearly didn't belong to his father either. His father was not as strong, as, as he said, his father didn't punish him. There wasn't a, a sort of edible fear about his father. His father wasn't seen as a strong or forbidding sort of man. Uh, so I think you have a hard time, you know, convincingly interpreting it that way is my feeling. I tend to take it as a early symbol, a kind of mythic symbol of potency and creativity to come, whether you take it on a biological level, he was a fertile man, he fathered five children, or you take it at a more mental and emotional level, a creative personality. Yeah. Could you say something about um, 
impact of Jung on culture and the impact on Jungian thoughts on ideas since his time? Uh, why would the impact of his thoughts? Figures? Why was Jung an important figure in the 20th century generally? Uh, books recently been published called Jung in the Outside World, which is an exploration of this very question. What was Jung's influence on other thinkers? So this particular author named Barry Ulanov goes through a number of fields, literary studies, art criticism, uh, as well as psychology, clinical work, theology, so on and so forth. And, you know, lists hundreds and hundreds of figures who read him and were influenced by him. Uh, so I think uh, as a cultural force, a cultural figure, he's been enormously uh, powerful. Uh, I'd say one of, and increasingly so, I mean, Jung's ideas aren't dead, they're on the, on the, they're waxing, not waning, if anything. More and more applications to new fields, more people getting interested in it in Jungian ideas. Um, so I, I think the uh, the um, impact of his thinking is, will continue and may even be stronger in the next decades than it has been in the past. I think in probably uh, the greatest uh, impact of his ideas on, on our culture in America at least has been in the last 20 years. But, uh, and that's since his works have been translated into English in the collected works published by Princeton University Press. Now it used to be by the Bolligan Foundation, which was financed by the Mellons. And Mary Mellon was one of his followers, and uh, she created a foundation to translate his works into English, which was only completed in the 60s. So, um, uh, a lot of people have, have started reading and uh, using his works in, in many different areas and different fields. So I think it's still early to say what, in the end, will be the influence of Jung's thought on culture. I think we're sort of in the early phases of it myself. Um, I think Freud's ideas have been much more um, explored in detail and sort of felt through to their very tips, to their furthest reaches. I think that's being done with Jung's ideas now, but there are still lots of things in his works that haven't been really explicated fully and led to their final conclusions. Um, I think he's a kind of thinker that uh, um, excites people in many fields, including the hard sciences like physics. You know, he wrote a book with Wolfgang Pauli together. They co-authored a book in the early 50s. Jung wrote an essay on synchronicity, and Pauli wrote an essay on the archetypal influence, uh, uh, the influence of archetypal thought on Kepler's ideas. Something like that. I forget the exact title, but it's along those lines. And, um, so people, even from the hard sciences, uh, have and, and uh, neurology, for example, and uh, chemistry and physics have found points of contact with Jung's thought and ex expanded them or explored them in, in interesting ways. I think in the 
in a sense, a lot of his ideas are, will turn out to be intuitions of lines of thinking that it was much too early for him to explore in detail, but that can be carried on much more effectively now. He didn't know very much about the brain, uh, for example, neurology. Uh, psychopharmacology hadn't been invented yet. And so all that whole end of biological science, uh, you know, can the archetypes be located in brain structure somewhere? You would say yes. You know, you would say we're, he said very often we're born with a brain that's taken millions of years to evolve, and that's why you have these common human ideas and behaviors that we call archetypal patterns. So somewhere within brain structure, and the way the brain works, there is a tendency to pattern thoughts in certain typical ways. That's the idea of archetypes. The archetype is a tendency to pattern thoughts in certain typical ways. The basis of patterning. Well, as soon as you can uncover how the brain patterns thinking or perception, you know, you've located a physiological basis for for the archetypes. That's what that's all the archetypes are in a sense. You know, they're there's latent structures of organization, organizing information, organizing perceptions. Uh, uh, giving a form to what you're bombarded with, you know, in the way of uh, whether they're thoughts or perceptions coming into your sensorium and you're having to do something with them. They get organized in a certain way. Yeah. I, I thought he alluded to um, something that had to do with good and evil. Um, I may have been mistaken, but. Yeah. And, and perhaps the idea of the need for redemption of some kind. Would that come from his analysis of his patients' dreams or from his religious upbringing? Or? All of that. All of that. Um, yeah. Uh, what would his relationship be to modern day existentialists? Um. He was he was more of a scientist than an existentialist. This is where his science goes. He he would. I mean, existentialism is a movement of culture and philosophy and thinkers. But they're uh, Jung would say, what are the facts? You know, if you say that existence is so and so, how do you back that up with with facts and with data? And so, if you talk about evil, he'd want to say, well, on the subject of evil, let's investigate. Let's see what what if human beings always thought about evil. For, for instance, let's start there. Are there certain characteristic ways that human beings have always thought, imagined evil? And what is the judgment that uh, something is evil? Where does that come from in the psyche? You know, Do people always consider the same things to be evil? That would be a method, a method for approaching the subject, you see. I mean, he, he wouldn't start out by saying that evil exists somewhere, there's an evil being that creates evil. Uh, but he, he would start out by saying, what if human beings thought about evil? Now let's look at that. Compare their mythologies, their religions, their fairy tales, their stories, and see if you can find some points of commonality. And then if you look clinically, what is what is the individual's experience of evil? In oneself, the shadow, you know, he talks about the shadow aspect of the psyche. Or in other people, in history, uh, in, in dreams, you know. So you get a whole bunch of material out there on the table having to do with the subject of good and evil before you start reaching conclusions about it. You wouldn't start out by saying there is absolute evil, metaphysically speaking, or something like that. 
I think that he had a lot to say about good and evil. I mean, on that subject, that's one of Jung's subjects. You know, I mean, he, he fusses with that a lot. And he discusses it with theologians and philosophers in his, in his writings and in his letters. So uh, that would be a big subject for us to explore. But uh, um, basically, he doesn't think, when, when, when you draw the line at the end of the day, Jung doesn't think that evil is an absolute principle of, uh, of the psyche or of, of the universe. Um, good, evil is always in relation to good, and good is always relation, in relation to evil. And it's more a judgment of consciousness than it is a thing in itself. You know, it's a, it's a question of judgment and who is judging. You know, from one point of view, one thing looks evil, one person looks evil. From another point of view, the other person looks evil. It's a question, when you say good and evil, you're into judging. You know, you're making judgments. And so you ask, where are those judgments coming from? What's the point of view and what's the perspective? And uh, so that's that's one level at which he discusses good and evil, that it's a judgment of consciousness. Um, but he's different from Freud. You know, Freud had two principles, the Eros principle and the, and the Thanatos principle, or love and aggression, love and death, if you will. And Jung didn't follow that line of thought. He didn't think that aggression was fundamental or that evil was fundamental to the human being. It's a kind of secondary byproduct. Evil is not an archetype, for example. There is not, in, in Jung's vocabulary, there isn't an archetype of evil. There are images of evil, and there are thoughts about evil, judgments of evil. So in terms of the archetype, is he saying that human nature is predictable? Is what? Human nature is predictable? Uh, Assuming you have certain archetypes, yeah. knowing what those are, does that predict exactly how you behave? No, it isn't that specific. Uh, there would be, you could predict certain characteristic ways that you would probably behave. But archetypes are, uh, you have to weave together different layers. I mean, to, to enter a prediction, you have to weave archetypal, cultural, personal layers together to get the answer to you know, what you would do as an individual in a particular situation. On the basis of archetypal theory, you can predict what large groups will do, statistically, but you can't predict what an individual will do. On the basis of archetypal theory, you can predict culture, for example. You can predict, you can predict the development of a culture from ground zero to, you know, 2,000 years later. Nobody's done it, but you could do it theoretically. I have one question. Historically, where does human exist? In words, if there wasn't human, there wasn't Freud's suffice her. In words, if human hadn't existed, we'd have to make up human. If human hadn't existed, we'd have to make him up. No, I think he's a... That means he's got past Freud, or could we live with Freud without having human? He's so different from Freud. I am, I mean, I used to tell him different than Yeah, he's so different from Freud that uh, if Jung hadn't done it, probably somebody else would have stepped in. But, but again, it gives it a particular, it's Jung. You know, I mean, nobody else could have done it quite like that. Nobody else could have done Freud. If Freud hadn't existed, would somebody else have come up with Freudian-like ideas? Yeah, you know, Nietzsche. You know, there, I mean, there's Nietzsche, it's sort of like Freud. 
But um, Jung, uh, Jung is less pathologizing than Freud, although he was a psychiatrist, Freud was not a psychiatrist. Jung worked with really sick people. I mean, serious, chronic, schizophrenic, manic depressive, hospitalized, permanently ill people. And uh, Freud didn't. And so it's an odd thing that Jung's psychology is much less pathologizing than Freud's, who worked with hysterics and neurotics. Uh, Jung's is a much more optimistic psychology. It's a much more forward-looking, future-oriented than past-oriented psychology. And it, it has a spiritual dimension to it, a spiritual side to it that Freudian psychology doesn't have. It's not reductionistic the way Freudian psychology is. Um, but these are all, um, sorry we don't have a lot more time to go on with this, but you have, and uh, in your future classes you'll get a flavor of you. And I hope you continue your study here at the Institute. Much to learn and interesting things to explore, and maybe I'll see some of you in the class again someday. Thanks for being here. Commentary today is by Peter DeMuth, PsyD, Jungian analyst in private practice in Evanston, Illinois. More information about Dr. DeMuth can be found at DeMuthPsychologicalServices.com. Hello, this is Dr. Peter DeMuth. Um, an analyst at the Chicago Society for Jungian Analysts, and I just listened to Murray Stein's uh, introductory lecture on Jung. Um, in listening to Murray, uh, I noticed that he really borrows heavily on Jung's biography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and he even states right at the beginning that that's how he got introduced to Jung many years ago, and, and that's how many of us um, get introduced to Jung by reading uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. So after you listen to this lecture, if you haven't read that book, that would probably be the next place for you to go if you want to get more information. And then after that, um, Deidre Bear's wonderful biography called Jung, that would be the next place uh, I would suggest you you go. The, the lecture itself really follows uh, pretty much the biography. You know, it starts out at his, um, I think Jung was born in 1875 in, in, a, uh, in a town probably 30-some miles outside of Zurich, and he lived along uh, on a river, and his father was a parson. And it, it talks about his life, his early life, um, struggles with his um, mother's uh, two personalities. Uh, she uh, was removed from him at one point, I think, for, for two weeks and the effect that had on him. And then it goes through his life uh, at the university and he touches on the fact that he had to decide to be a physician because that was a practical uh, kind of decision for him. And then, then he talks a lot about Freud and Jung when Jung visits Freud in Vienna. And, you know, talks about his early... Um, uh, association experiments. So it really does follow the memories, dreams, and reflections very much. So this is the kind of lecture to listen to if you want to get a, a good, uh, early, just well-rounded version of, of who Jung is. And then you can kind of go on from there and, and read more in depth. But uh, found the, uh, the lecture to be good. It was a nice uh, review for me. Um, I hadn't read, read Memories, Dreams, and Reflections in a while and have forgotten some of those details. But it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was enjoyable to listen to. So that's all I had to say. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. The content of today's lecture is copyright Murray Stein. Join us on Friday, January 9th, when Jungian analyst Paul Smurz will give a talk called Transforming Your Intimate Relationship from Functional to Spiritual. Visit our website for more information about that and other courses. We'll see you next time. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you.